Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. In this episode, I make a case for big government. I discuss the novel coronavirus pandemic and its effects on black people, and I vent about voter suppression. All right, so it's been a while. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, what have I been up to? Lots of different stuff. Even before the coronavirus, I had an unusually busy time of travel and speaking, mostly centered around the color of compromise, so I wasn't able to make my regularly re- uh, scheduled recording times. I also got slammed with grading and TA duties for my graduate program, and I've been working on a big project. I can't tell you the details yet, but I assure you it will be well worth the wait. I had to put a ton of work into it in the past couple of months, and that's why I've had this hiatus from Footnotes, but it will be worth it. So stay tuned for more details on that. Back to our regularly scheduled programming, my favorite part of the podcast is reading the reviews because I get to hear directly from you. So we're at 270 reviews, which is up 258, up from 258, on the last episode. Thank you so much. I read each and every one of them, even the critical (laughs) one-star reviews that accuse me of being a liberal and and all that stuff. But I also love to read reviews on the air, so keep them coming. And today we read from a person who signed, One Who Wants to Change. She says, this is long overdue, Jamar. I came across your podcast as well as past the mic a few months ago, and I'm so thankful I did. I've listened to many episodes, and God is opening my eyes and heart to so much in our history, past and current, that sadly, I didn't even know existed. Lord, forgive me. I am a white Christian woman who wants to seek the truth about my black brothers and sisters, to be one who listens and hears the truth and is obedient to whatever God wants me to do. Thank you so very much for sharing your heart and soul and for bringing the truth to light. May God continue to use you mightily. Thank you very much for those kind words. So grateful that you're engaging in this journey of racial justice. It can be hard sometimes, but hopefully listening to podcasts like this one increase our awareness and and help us along this road. Another announcement, now you can stream the Color of Compromise video series. A lot of churches are meeting virtually for Sunday worship or Bible study in small groups. If you're looking for material in this age of social distancing, then this video series might just be right for you. From the description, this video study provides an in-depth diagnosis for a racially divided American church and suggests ways to foster a more equitable and inclusive environment among God's people. Uh, The video study is available as part of the, quote, Master Lectures series by Zondervan Academic. I certainly did not come up with that title. I wouldn't have put myself in that category. Go to masterlectures.zondervanacademic.com and search for The Color of Compromise. The link will also be in the show notes for this episode. One last announcement before we get to the news. Uh, We are doing another book giveaway. I know it's been a long time, but as a small token of my appreciation, I want to give away another book. Some of you have perhaps heard of a new book called From Here to Equality, subtitled Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. The authors are William Sandy Darity and A. Kirsten Mullen, who are both economists, I believe. 
And from the back cover, it says, In From Here to Equality, William Darity Jr. and A. Kirsten Mullen confront these injustices, a lack of reparations, head-on and make the most comprehensive case to date for economic reparations for U.S. descendants of slavery. After opening the book with a stark assessment of the intergenerational effects of white supremacy on black economic well-being, Darity and Mullen look to both the past and the present to measure the inequalities born of slavery. Finally, Darity and Mullen offer a detailed roadmap for an effective reparations program, including a substantial payment to each documented U.S. black descendant of slavery. Folks, I've got this book. I pre-ordered it. I uh, uh, got it as soon as possible. I've been reading through it. When it is, when I say it's comprehensive and detailed, if you ever wanted to make a case for reparations, this is it. They include great historical data, tons of uh, stats and, and figures to, to back up their qualitative assertions. And then, of course, they end the book with actually their recommendations for how to implement reparations, including how to figure out who qualifies, how much it should be. They evaluate other proposals for reparations. It is sort of one-stop shopping or at least a great introduction into the topic of economic reparations. And if you want the book From Here to Equality, here's what you have to do to enter. First, if you have not yet left a review, leave a review. Then screenshot it and email it to me at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. Footnotespod1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. Or if you have already left a review, just tag me and two other people on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, with a link to this episode. I'll announce the winner next week, so you have until next Tuesday uh, at 5 p.m. Central Time to enter. Enter to win the new book, From Here to Equality. Now on to the news. There's no depression in heaven. I know that's a funny thing to say, but not if you know the context. That's actually the title of a book, No Depression in Heaven, The Great Depression, The New Deal, and The Transformation of Religion in the Delta. It's by Allison Collis Green, a history professor out of Emory University in Atlanta. And I was reminded of this book because of the novel coronavirus and the economic havoc that it's creating. We've been advised and in some cases ordered by health officials and elected officials to practice social distancing. Distancing, sorry. To practice social distancing. This means avoiding any unnecessary travel and staying away from large gatherings. We're basically supposed to stay at home as much as possible, including for work, if possible. So this social distancing has created massive disruptions in our regular life. At my university, the University of Mississippi, they extended spring break for an additional week. Uh, that was to give students time to move out of their dorms because they're transitioning to online classes for the rest of the semester. The NBA has canceled its season along with other major professional sports. Concert tours have been canceled. Uh, I personally had several conferences coming up that have been canceled. And all of this has an economic impact. There are folks such as those of us who work the gig economy doing speaking and freelancing that have been hit hard. Restaurant workers, airlines, hotels, and the recreation industry have taken massive financial losses that are only going to get worse over time. The stock market has been volatile and seen dramatic up and ups and downs in the last couple of weeks. 
In the midst of all this, the federal government took emergency action to prevent the crisis from worsening. They passed a $2 trillion stimulus bill, which includes, among other provision, writing checks to every qualified American for an amount raising, ranging from uh, $1,000 to $2,000. It also provides a smaller amount for children in a household. And the idea is to help people, many of whom are now out of work or taking a drastic pay cut, to weather this storm and to stimulate the economy. And I'm all for it. I think any federal bailout should start with the grassroots and not the treetops. I don't believe that trickle-down economics works or works fast enough or works for the people it needs to work for in order to prevent an economic calamity. Uh, That means tax cuts for the rich in hopes that they're going to create more jobs and spend more money doesn't have the impact that legislators and pundits promise. Instead, give the money directly to the people then they can pay the bills and spend and move the economy, and that's from the bottom up rather than the top down. Even Republicans got behind this $2 trillion stimulus bill, and that's something that, well, perhaps only a pandemic could make make happen. None of this would have been, I think, within the realm of possibility just a couple of weeks ago before this pandemic struck. People in the U.S. would have been sharply divided along partisan lines about quote-unquote, government bailouts or expanding the social safety net. But a crisis has an odd way of making so-called radical ideas seem reasonable. All of this brings me back to the book, No Depression in Heaven. Uh, Dr. Green basically makes the point that the Great Depression was of such an enormous scope and scale that existing institutions such as churches and philanthropic organizations, they were quickly overwhelmed by the demands for relief. They didn't have the resources to give money and food and clothes and other necessities to all the people who needed it. So they quickly turned to the federal government for assistance. In this time, the role of the federal government, kind of during the Great Depression New Deal era, uh, the role of the federal government in the lives of everyday people, it dramatically shifted. And we began to expect the government to provide assistance on a scale that only it could. Here are some relevant quotes from the book that I think apply in this age of the coronavirus. Dr. Green writes, The Great Depression gave lie to the toxic notion that responsibility for poverty lies with the poor rather than systems of oppression that make a mockery of the American dream. Here's another. Members of families, communities, and churches turn to one another, and then they turn together to demand more of their political system, more of their federal government. As I was reading this, I thought it sounded similar to calls for a universal basic income, student debt relief, mortgage payment suspension, and all of these other moves we're trying to make in a time of economic calamity. And and there's one more. You got to love this line that artfully articulates the strain on local resources and the turn to federal assistance. Professor Green wrote, their churches and their charities were broke. It was time for a higher power to intervene. They looked to God, and then they looked to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. (laughs) Listen, in this crisis, people are more open to quote-unquote radical solutions in order to prevent calamity. And we should use this time of massive upheaval to reevaluate federal policies in order to permanently reduce systemic poverty 
and the hardships it causes. We ought never to return to normal if that means reifying inequality and suffering. Let's use this time to imagine a different reality and a different future and use the levers of politics and policies to help bring that about. Now, before I move off this point, I'm about to blow your mind. You're going to impress people when you say and explain this concept as it relates to the coronavirus. All right, you ready? Here it goes. Have you ever heard of the principle of subsidiarity? Subsidiarity. There's a uh, Christian theologian named Jake Medor in his pithy new book called In Search of the Common Good. He explains it this way. Subsidiarity means that when a social problem arises, the body that should address it is the smallest, most local body possible. If a problem can be solved by a household, it should. If a household can't, but a neighborhood can, then the neighborhood should. The progression simply continues on upward until you get to the largest social institution, which is usually the state. Now, Catholic social tradition popularized the principle of subsidiarity in the form of some papal encyclicals, uh, but the, the sort of concept can be found in multiple traditions and philosophies, maybe under other names. It really originated in the context of industrialization and the gargantuan power of corpora corporations and conglomerates to control the lives of workers, also in the rise of communism uh, in places like Russia and other places. And so it was an attempt to assign responsibility where it most logically rests. And so I think the principle of subsidiarity is helpful in the case of the novel coronavirus. With a pandemic of this scale, only the federal government really has the resources and capacity to manage it. I know some may not like to hear that, but listen, the federal government in particular can assemble scientists and health experts. It can deploy the military to deliver medical equipment, build emergency hospitals, manage the overall logistics, and the federal government can do things like pass a $2 trillion stimulus bill to help everyday people. But instead... What has happened is that the Trump administration has left much of the coordination of how to respond to this virus at the state level. And so on the one hand, you want to leave states enough leeway to respond to the particularities of the virus's spread in each locale. I mean, Montana is going to be different than Missouri is going to be different than Mississippi, right? But on the other hand, when it comes to procuring the uh, N95 face masks, ventilators, and other vital medical resources, states are now in bidding wars with each other. This drives up the price, it deprives states of much-needed material, and it costs precious, precious time that could save lives. And so in a pandemic infecting tens of thousands of people, and that affects absolutely any everyone when you consider social distancing and shelter-in-place measures, then the principle of subsidiarity means that it's right and appropriate for the federal government to step in and coordinate the response. But that's not happening. We have a crisis in leadership, and I'm just going to say it, we've got a morally and intellectually petty president who cares more about his personal ratings and what this pandemic will do to his chances at re-election than the people getting infected and even dying from the virus. He has yet to express any authentic sympathy, from what I can see, for victims and nor has he given any kind of real hope and and um, 
helped cover the truth that you would expect a leader to do in times of crisis. Moreover, this incompetence is costing lives because we don't have testing, we don't have medical supplies, we don't have coordination. What we do have is an abundance of misinformation and partying, partisan jockeying. It's really a detestable demonstration of government not at work, really. Nevertheless, I hope this tragedy helps us all see an appropriate role for big government at times. Maybe even after a crisis, when the scope of a particular issue, such as healthcare, is so large that only the federal government could possibly step in to coordinate and resource it. Subsidiarity. Think about it. More on the topic of the coronavirus. The coronavirus is having a disproportionate impact on black people. Remember when folks were joking that black people couldn't get the Rona? That was at the very beginning when before we really knew what this was all about or how it would affect us. And that's because we weren't really hearing any racial data on infection and death rates from the virus. We probably didn't have much of the data back then, but but now we do. And we still have very limited information, but on the scant data we do have, the picture looks grim as it relates to race and healthcare. So according to an article from USA Today, it says, Black Americans are overwhelmingly dying of coronavirus at much higher rates compared to other Americans in some major cities. But most federal officials and states are not keeping track or releasing racial data on coronavirus victims, raising concerns about care for the nation's most vulnerable populations. Of the 512 coronavirus-related deaths in Louisiana, about 360, or 70%, were African-American patients, despite the fact that blacks comprise less than a third of the state population. And you can go to other places like Chicago and New York City and different states, and it's the same story, that the African-American population is you know, a, a fraction of the overall population, and yet when it comes to infections and especially coronavirus-related deaths, African Americans are widely disproportionately represented among those killed by this virus. So what's the issue? Well, I commented on Twitter about this, and lo and behold, I actually had someone say something that uh, was racially insensitive. Can you imagine that happening on social media? It did. Go figure. But this is what the person said. I, I had posted something about uh, the coronavirus affecting black people at disproportionate rates. And this person said, I go by what I see. And almost all the blacks I'm around disregard social distancing 100%. It's acting white, I guess. So this happens all the time. When someone who's trying to bring up a point about racism, particularly systemic racism, and they cite data and studies, they have facts and they have figures, the rebuttal from people who are oftentimes embedded in white supremacy is, well, I've done my own research and I disagree with you. But, but what the guy literally said was, I go by what I see. Not exactly research. But cool story anyway, bro. Thanks. But what's happening here 
is actually institutional racism in our healthcare system. Black people by design are already disproportionately poor. Remember that reparations conversation we were having uh, around that book? And we're often by design confined to areas with dense populations, thus exposing us to the coronavirus in close quarters. We have low-wage jobs that don't provide health care, or we have jobs that are deemed essential right now, restaurant workers, uh, nursing assistants, other similar works. Uh, so folks can't do shelter in place, and they've got a higher risk of exposure because they're out and about and around other people. And when testing for this virus happens, somehow wealthy folks get access when they need it, but poor folks, especially poor black folks, are often the last or left out altogether. All of this is a toxic cocktail that makes black people and other similarly socially situated people groups more susceptible to contracting a deadly virus. To continue to deny institutional and systemic racism in the face of up-to-the-minute data, it baffles me. How can you be so committed to individualism, the myth of meritocracy, and perhaps even white supremacy, that you refuse to acknowledge that black people dying in vastly higher proportions than white people is not simply a function of individual choices? Like I said many times, when it comes to issues of racial justice, it's not a matter of just providing more information. Because you can stack facts from floor to ceiling and it won't change a person's mind. We need to treat some folks like they've never truly accepted the Christian gospel. How can someone say they love God but they hate their brother or sister? Now, I don't know if folks have accepted uh, the gospel or not, but the adherence to ignorance in the face of human suffering is as much a spiritual problem as an intellectual one. So pray for folks. One more bit of news. The Supreme Court voted to disfranchise thousands of voters. The Washington Post reports the Wisconsin Supreme Court blocked Governor Tony Evers' executive order suspending in-person voting in Tuesday's elections, launching a final scramble for election officials to prepare polling places and protect voters and workers hours before balloting was scheduled to begin. So, in a nutshell, there's been a ton of back and forth between Democratic and Republican lawmakers about what to do about the April 7th election in Wisconsin in light of the novel coronavirus. We've got all these social distancing measures and shelter-in-place measures, and so how are you going to go out and physically vote without exposing yourself to the virus? So, Democrats have been pushing to conduct the election entirely by mail-in ballot, a measure that other states are positively considering. When that didn't work, a lower court ordered that the state extend the deadline to accept absentee ballots by another several days to April 13th. But that was overturned by the Supreme Court, and the election took place as scheduled on April 7th. What that means is that people had to choose between voting and risking exposure to the novel coronavirus. They literally had to choose between health precautions and voting. In addition, many Wisconsinites hadn't even received their absentee ballots by the time of the original election date, so they were automatically disenfranchised through no fault of their own. 
There are few political maneuvers that outrage me more than voter disenfranchisement. This is a history as old as the United States, when black people, women, Native Americans, and other groups were not even considered citizens. They couldn't vote. Then after all the hard-fought and even deadly activism required to gain basic civil rights and paramount among those civil rights was the right to vote, politicians have systematically dismantled voter protections. Several years ago, the Supreme Court withdrew key provisions in the 1965 Voting Rights Act that stated that states who had a, that had a history of voter discrimination had to clear any changes to the voting policies with the federal government. As soon as that provision was removed, states went back to gerrymandering districts, purging voter rolls, as they notoriously did in Georgia's gubernatorial election. They imposed strict voter ideas that made it ultimately harder for poor people and people of color to vote, and many, many more tactics to, to limit the vote. All of this amounts to reconstructing Jim Crow-era attempts to deny the vote to the poor, and to people of color. So take Milwaukee, for instance. It has the highest proportion of black people in the state. It also votes overwhelmingly Democrat. It normally has 180 polling stations. For this election on April 7th, it had just five. Five were open for an important statewide election, and for the Democratic primary. The lines, of course, were hours long, and that means more time to get exposed to the coronavirus. But you know where the lines were short and where there won't, weren't so many delays? In rural areas that are predominantly white and Republican. I said on Facebook that any politi political maneuvering that undermines the democratic process means that we will not long be living in a democracy. It's happening in Wisconsin. I've seen it happen for years in places like Mississippi. Voter suppression may be happening in your own community. Now, I remain hopeful that vigilant people motivated to action can make a difference, but we have to pay attention to whether the ideal of one person, one vote is under systematic and often quiet attack by our public officials. If you want to learn more, I'm going to recommend an excellent book. It's called One Person, One Vote, by Carol Anderson. The description says, Anderson follows the astonishing story of government-dictated racial discrimination unfolding before our very eyes as more and more states adopt voter suppression laws. In gripping and lightning detail, she explains how voter suppression works from photo ID requirements to gerrymandering to poll closures. And there's more. So check out One Person, No Vote by Carol Anderson for more information about voting rights and voter suppression. And on that positive note, that's it for this return of footnotes. Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co, that's thewitnessfoundation.co, and help us raise a million dollars for black Christian ministry. Go to Facebook and like my author page, Facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one forward slash Jamar Tisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Jamar Tisby. And you can contact me via email. Remember, you want to enter that book contest footnotespod1 at gmail.com. 
Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast Suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. Footnotes.